Sunil Vidami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift. The radio show that explores the exhilarating, the innovative and the unpredictable in the rapidly evolving world of work. Every week, we delve into the uncharted territories of groundbreaking technology, innovation and mind-bending trends that are upending the way we work, live and play. Prepare for a captivating expedition to the zenith of human potential as we intelligently examine the challenges, opportunities and potential pitfalls that lie ahead. From the rise of automation and artificial intelligence, remote working and the emergence of groundbreaking new industries to decentralised workforces and radical income models, the explosion of virtual reality offices and the rise of digital nomads. The next shift empowers you to not only survive, but also thrive in this new era of work. Sunil Badami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift. Only on Disrupt Radio. This is The Next Shift with Sunil Badami on Disrupt Radio. Working from home to hybrid workplaces. Finding the right side hustle or meaning in what you do. How to work with AI before it takes your job. Work is changing faster every day and the future of work is already here. How do you navigate office politics via Zoom? How important is diversity when everyone's working from home? And how can you manage a bad boss or that Gen Z intern? The Next Shift with Sunil Badami. We challenge and inspire you to adapt, evolve, and become an unstoppable force. I'm Sunil Badami. I've had more jobs than I've had haircuts, including as a journalist, broadcaster, academic, and researcher specialising in the future of work. And together, we'll explore the future of work today and how you can shift up to the next level, wherever you work, whatever you do. Welcome to The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. We all know it and admit it. Sometimes we use it. I don't know about you, but half the time when I hear it, I have no clue what it means. It's the kind of language that if I was still teaching creative writing or editing books, I'd cross out if I didn't rip out the page. So going forward, let's unpack it, run it up the flagpole and get a helicopter view as we put on the record and see who danced. Oh, I can't. I can't. That's right, we're talking about corporate jargon. We love straight talkers who tell it like it is, and most of us think it's ridiculous or just plain hate it, like me. So why do we use it so much? Today on The Next Shift, we'll find out why managers, consultants and organisations love using corporate jargon, why you shouldn't, and what it really means. So let's take a deep dive and look at... Oh, I still can't do it. I'm Sunil Badami. Welcome to The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. Well, it doesn't feel like there's a new buzzword or bit of corporate jargon every day. Resenteeism, agile, holacracy, all promising to be bleeding edge game changers in the way we talk about work. Look, here's an idea. How about we just use the language we use everywhere else? I mean, can you imagine telling the guy 
your cafe that the juice wasn't worth the squeeze? Circling back just the same as, I don't know, turning around? And while we're at it, have you ever squared a circle? And why would you want to in the first place? How about just drawing a square? Unfortunately, the proliferation of corporate jargon often draws a blank. So why do managers, consultants and organisations love using it so much when nobody knows what it means? Or if it even means anything at all? Now, you'll remember Gabrielle Dolan telling us the story about how she became a storyteller for business in our episode about storytelling for business. And in addition to being a best-selling author, highly sought-after international keynote speaker and an educator on strategic storytelling and real communication, well, like me, she hates corporate jargon. Thanks so much for joining us again, Gabrielle Dolan. So, Gabrielle, as a thought leader regarding corporate buzzwords, I thought maybe we could just start with some low-hanging fruit and start with a really easy idea shower. What's your favourite corporate buzzword? Okay, I see what you did then and called me a thought leader on corporate jargon. And can I just say, no one should ever call themselves a thought leader. I was just running it up the flagpole, you know. I knew, yeah, we're running up the flagpole and seeing salutes. (laughs) I, I actually never knew what running up the flagpole. It didn't make sense to me until I realised the end bit was see who salute. So that comes from the military, of course. Look, I some jargon words just make me laugh. The my the one I just really don't like is pivot, and I didn't like it five years ago. And then when COVID hit, it was just it was just the obsessive use of that word pivot. It felt like everyone was pivoting. People were pivoting so much it was making me dizzy. We're not hearing it as much, but we still certainly hear it. Well, I mean, we all laugh at or detest corporate jargon, right? We all know it's meaningless. But why do management consultancies and executives love using corporate jargon so much when they know everybody kind of disengages from it? I think they they use it to make themselves sound smart and make themselves sound like they're really up to date. I was going to say leading edge then, but that's a little bit of a jargon. And look, and in seriousness, sometimes we use jargon words that we don't even think are jargon. I'm trying to, you know, raise the awareness of jargon words. But if I speak to my mum and I'm thinking I'm not using jargon, she thinks I'm using jargon. Consultancy firms, I think, uh, they make this stuff up. They make this stuff up to make them sound like it's all really complicated and then they go into organisations and the organisations feel so overwhelmed that they go, we can't do this and we need the consultants to help it. And then all it takes is a consultant to come in and speak to the executive leadership team and then all of a sudden the executive leadership team are using the same words and then it just filters down. But I recall reading in one of your think pieces. I do not call them think pieces. You are just trying to wind me up now. I'm trying to boil your ocean. (laughs) You just make sure you get all your ducks in a row before you do that. (laughs) I mean, I remember reading in one of your online pieces or stories talking about how someone had used an expression. I think it was something similar to, I don't know, it it had a lot of Asians in it or Isations in it. And you asked Mm -hmm. them, what the hell are you talking about? And it took them four goes to actually explain that. Why hasn't anyone just done what you do and say to management consultants, hey, what are you talking about? Yeah, this happened, I reckon, about 25 years ago when I was working at National Australia Bank in sort of almost an internal 
change role and there was a this senior executive and his name was Jeff and I still remember him. He was a lovely guy, but he always used the term executional excellence. And I just, in the end, I said, Jeff, what do you mean by that? Because I don't know what that means. And he started to explain it. And every time I kept saying, can you please just put it in simple words? And in the end, he was really frustrated and said, well, put simply, executional excellence excellence means once we decide to do something, let's bloody well do it right. And I was like, why don't you say that? Because people get that. So um, I think it sometimes it just takes people to push back and go, tell me what you mean by that, because I don't understand what you're saying. It seems as if there are more and more kind of buzzwords and portmanteaus being coined all the time, especially in relation to work and the workplace. You know, we've got, say, for example, resenteeism, where people turn up and they resent being there. But I can't work out the distinction between that and quiet quitting, which is now given rise to the phenomenon of quiet thriving. And it's just like, where do they come from? It's, I think sometimes someone is just making them up to see if they can catch on. But yeah, it's like, why resentism, for example? It was like, isn't that just someone being resentful? What We feel the need to add ism to a lot of things. All it takes is for you to not know a few of them, and you can't actually understand what anyone's talking about. But it's interesting too, isn't it? Because although we appreciate plain speaking, you know, in contracts and in interactions with our colleagues or customers and that kind of simple English, I mean, when we think about, say, for example, expressions that are especially loaded, say, for example, letting you go or downsizing, people often and organisations often use that to soften the blow, but it, it kind of makes it sound even worse because we know exactly what they are planning to do. What words or phrases would you use to someone who was about to be downsized or right-sized? Or <laughs> I do remember I was working in corporate when downsizing first came in and it was like, well, that just seems a very nice way to say that we're going to be cutting jobs. And then they changed it to right-sizing, which still meant we're cutting jobs. Right-sizing was never employing people, that's for sure. I think you just got to be honest. I think you've got to literally say, unfortunately, we need to let some people go. And some people might even go, that's being a bit soft. But it's okay to be a bit soft in your language. It's not like you're going to go, oh, and by the way, you're going to get sacked and thrown out of this organization. Although I have had bosses tell me that exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you might have warranted. That might have been warranted. <laughs> so I think there's a difference between maybe softening the language, but then there's a very big difference between trying to cover it up. And I think the term right-sizing, like it tended to like just totally avoid them admitting that people were going to lose their job. You're on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami, unpacking corporate jargon and running it up the flagpole with corporate storyteller and founder of No Jargon Fridays, Gabrielle Dolan. It's interesting too because there's a number of phrases that I've had a look at that I go, they're a bit problematic, especially in an age where we're being much more careful about how we speak and how we refer to certain ideas. Like, open the kimono. Oh, yeah, that was a terrible one. That was always a terrible one. And like it, the origin of that is literally get a female undressing. And though they would be bandied around in workplaces, normally predominantly male people around your males around the table. But imagine how, you know, the one or two single or the one or two females would be feeling when that terminology is being used. And most people wouldn't even know what the origins of it. Yeah. I, it's funny, isn't it? Because I don't know. Did you, did, have you watched a show by the name of Succession? 
No, I haven't done that, but I feel like I need to watch it because everyone's talking about it. Yes, and I should say you're now out of the officially mandated spoiler alert statutory limit. Interestingly, one of an office I recently worked at, one person in the office was saving up all of the last series so they could binge it. And so they would go around and say, no, 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 you can't talk about it, spoiler alert. I don't know if that's Mm. right. No, you, there's a sort of time limit for spoiler alert. In in my storytelling workshops, there's a point I refer, I reference The Wizard of Oz, and I am amazed there are people on this world, on this earth, that have never watched The Wizard of Oz. So I have to go, okay, spoiler alert, there's no <laughs> wizard. And I go, but you've had a lot of time to watch it. If you haven't watched The Wizard of Oz, apologies yeah, for that sorry, spoiler. Sorry, apologies. It's interesting because I listen to everybody in succession talking and they seem to talk in that elevated corporate jargon metaphor where I feel like I need something to translate it. But in addition to being on the next shift, I'd always been a writer and a creative writer. And of course, one of the key rules for good storytelling and writing is to paint images, to use those images when we're talking, uh, you know, when we're trying to tell a story. Why does corporate jargon using those images like looking under the bonnet or running up the flagpole, why are they so especially confusing and vague? I just, I think they're vague because people, they're just using them without really understanding what they mean. The amount of meetings I have been in where people would talk about like getting our ducks in a row, right? So we need to get our ducks in a row to make this decision. And everyone agrees and nods, but it was like, Okay, we sort of know what the saying means, but there's been no decision on what ducks, which row. Like people walk out without any real clarity around what they have to do. That's why I think it's so vague. People are just using it to sound like they know what they're talking about. It's the next shift on Disrupt Radio. I'm Sunil Badami, and you've been warned, no more spoiler alerts. So how can you stop using corporate jargon? Find out after the break because, you know, no spoiler alerts. Tune into Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. You're on the next shift with me, Sunil Badami, and we're back with strategic communicator and anti-jargon campaigner, Gabrielle Dolan, who was so annoyed by corporate jargon, she came up with a way to avoid jargon for at least 24 hours a week. I have to ask you, what is Jargon Free Friday and what's involved? Look, to put it really simply, it's a fun way to raise awareness of the consequences of using jargon and acronyms, which we do ridiculously in business. It came about once, and, I, and I've sort of talked about this a lot. One of my clients on a Friday sent me this Dilbert cartoon, and it was about jargon and acronyms. And I flicked it out on LinkedIn and said, hey, what about today on Friday? We just try not to use as much jargon. And then I had an idea about why don't we do this every Friday? So it Look, it's it's just raising awareness to the consequences. So I invested a lot of money on a website that I knew I'd never make any money from, but I was passionate about it. There's some really cool videos in there. And it's literally, if we spoke the way we did in business, in any other aspect of our life, we would call out how ridiculous it sounds. And those videos are doing that. So it's one of them is like, if, if a wedding proposal was in corporate jargon, or if you spoke to your kids about the birds and the bees about corporate jargon, what that would sound like. So that's the idea behind it. I love it. What's the address? jargonfreefridays.com. Let's unpack the programmatic specificity of JFF, Gabrielle. 
<laughs> I do. I know you're taking the piss there, Sunil, but I do sometimes when I'm speaking to my executive manager, do JFF. And I thought, oh, if anyone saw me writing JFS as an acronym, but it does the point, I only ever do it to internally to my assistant, but I would never, ever use JFF externally because no one would know what it meant. Okay, so it's a Friday at the Gabriel Dolan offices and mm-hmm. it's a jargon-free Friday Yeah, and somebody uses a bit of jargon or they use an acronym. Do you have a jargon jar where everybody no. has to contribute <laughs> I- or... I know a lot of I know a lot of organizations that do have a jargon jar. What I do sometimes with my clients is when they send me an email and specifically when it's on Friday and they've got jargon in there, I do call it out. And sometimes the way I call it out, I know I would say something like, Did you just say run it up the flagpole to annoy me because it's Friday? And they write back going, oh, my God, I didn't even realise and it was, I call it out that way. And it sometimes it is, it's just saying we don't realise we're using jargon. And I can speak to my mum, for example, and she'll go, what does that mean? And I'm realising I'm using jargon where I didn't think it was jargon because I know exactly what it means. So it's just doing it in a fun way. OMG. Let's hope <laughs> that... Every Friday, not every Friday, but every day is a jargon-free day, and I'm not jargon about that at all. No, and look, and why I say it's a fun way, we all know we do it. One of one of the keynotes I do is called Real Communication, and I love doing this keynote, and I love doing it because it's quite funny, even if I do say so myself, but other people say it. And I point this out in my keynote, and everyone in the audience is laughing because they are going, oh my God, that's exactly what we do. So it's, I think people know it's, you can take the piss out of it. But I also, the reason for it, it's not just to be fun. There's consequences to it. There's absolutely, it affects, it has a negative impact on the way we communicate. And when you're using jargon and acronyms and people don't understand it, it, it actually can isolate them or it can actually lead to complete miscommunication, especially when it comes to acronyms. Here's hoping that we can take it to the next level and maybe come up with, I don't know, no meetings Mondays or no PowerPoint Wednesdays. I'd be up for those. Oh, what about no PowerPoint ever? Or <laughs> what about if we're going to use PowerPoint, use it properly? That's a, yeah, maybe maybe that will be my next little crusade. And I will join you on it as well. Thank you so much for that wonderful idea shower today, Gabrielle. Stop it. You've given us Stop a real it. helicopter view. We've got on the balcony, haven't we? We've got off the dance floor and on the balcony today. Oh, yeah, we won't let the grass grow too long on this one. We'll put a record on and see who does. Yeah, and we have, I reckon we've well and truly been thinking outside the square, potentially even move the needle. Except on the record that we want everyone to dance on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't move that needle. That's, that's way too many scratchies. Disrupt Radio. We're all increasingly aware of the power of language and effective communication. So why do so many corporate leaders and consultants use corporate jargon and what the hell does it all mean? Someone who knows all about language and words and what they mean and who and why we use them is Sydney University linguist Professor Nick Enfield, who's done extensive research on language, culture, cognition and social life. He's written extensively on language, linguistics, anthropology and cognitive science for The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, The Wall Street Journal and Science. And his books include Language vs. Reality, Consequences of Language and How We Talk. 
So, Nick, what is a linguist and what do you do? Linguists are scientists who try to understand language. Sometimes when people talk about linguists, they're thinking of translators and interpreters, and that's not what linguists are. So what we do in linguistics is try to understand what is human language? Why is it like it is? And we try to understand the realms of possibility with human language. So we go far across the world and look at very different kinds of languages to try to understand the limits of language. Now, if you've grown up in most places of the world, you are going to be speaking two or three languages, maybe four or five, but you won't be speaking six or 7,000 languages. And that's the number of languages that are spoken today in the world. And many more have been spoken in history. So there's a massive degree of diversity in human language. And linguists try to understand through all that diversity, what is it that's really common across languages? See, we're just one species, of course, one animal among many, but we share this capacity to use language. And then within our species, we've got this incredible array of difference. So it's a real puzzle for scientists trying to understand what it is about human beings that allows us to communicate in the way we do. And so that's essentially the mission of linguistics. Now, as a linguist, you might specialize in some part of that. You might be a words person and work on dictionaries. You might be a sounds person and work on uh, phonetics and phonology and try to understand the different sound systems of language. You might be a grammar person and look at syntax and that kind of thing. There's historical linguistics, there's social linguistics, many different ways you can pose the basic question, but the fundamental question is what is the nature of human language? So what kind of linguist are you? What kind of linguistics do you work in? So I work in a few different areas of linguistics. One of the things that I do is what might be called field linguistics. So I've worked a lot in the field, which means traveling to places where languages are spoken and studying them where they're, where they're spoken. So my area of specialization is mainland Southeast Asia, and I've worked for many years in Laos. And I've focused quite a lot on, not only on kind of grammatical questions, but also on some of the aspects of language that haven't been studied that much in the past. And that's how conversations work and how the kind of real-time to and fro of social interaction works. I've also collaborated with people from all around the world in places like Ghana and Ecuador and New Guinea and Europe, comparing the way that different languages are used in social interaction. I love the fact that books like The Meaning of Tingo will tell us about specific kind of words that have a very particular meaning in a particular language that we can't necessarily articulate in our own language. The apocryphal story of Inuit people having 50 words for snow or even the Greek language having three different kinds of very specific love, eros, agape and philos. So why, with all of the diversity in vocabulary and thought that we have, why do we resort to the cliches of corporate jargon? Well, words have a lot of different functions. Now, one of them, obviously, is just communicating information. And that might seem pretty straightforward. You just have an idea or you see something happen and then you communicate it to someone by using the appropriate words. But it's, of course 
more complex and nuanced than that. The one question is, uh, well, what words am I going to use? What words do I have at my disposal? And that depends on the history of the community that I'm in. So as you point out, different cultures are going to provide the next generation with a different set of ideas that they can work with. So you're constrained in a way by what you've received from the people who've come before you. You mentioned words for snow. It's not entirely apocryphal. It's well known that people in different cultures will fine vocabulary for things that they prefer to talk about. And it's a pretty obvious kind of practical reason for that. It allows us to coordinate. It allows us to be efficient in our communication. So a big part of the answer is about what we as a group or a community are specialized in and what kinds of things do we want to collectively pay attention to. So that's true of different cultures and it's also true of different professions and different sort of areas of expertise. So if you're a hunter, if you're a fisher, if you're a dancer, a musician, you're going to have different types of terms that are specialized to just the activities that you carry out. And one answer would be, answer to your question about corporate jargon would be, well, we have technical terms that help us communicate about the things that are important to this specific specialization. And then you might respond and say, well, come on, corporate jargon has all these terrible terms for things that we already have quite normal words for. Circling back, isn't that just turning around? Exactly. Circling back, going forward to another one. Um, Now, this takes us to a second kind of function of language. It's not just that we're communicating about stuff that, you know, and we're trying to be efficient in doing so. The other thing we're doing is displaying who we are and displaying something about our identity. And that comes to the fore when you're not looking at different languages, but rather different dialects or the ways of speaking in different kinds of subcultures. And work environments are interesting because on the one hand, I mean, there's this great tension in working environments between being part of a single unit and all being together. But on the one hand, having this very kind of extreme hierarchy, right? So everyone has a boss and their boss probably has a boss, depending on the size of the organization. So there's a very clear hierarchy. And that means you have a kind of an in-out axis going up and down that, you know, I'm not in the group of the people above me. And yet there's an attempt to bring everyone together as part of the organization. Now, words, just as in slang, for example, among kids, words allow you to signal that you are part of the gang. Okay. So, you know, I've got young kids and they say slay, everything's slay, which means great and cool. And before that, it was something else. So words are used to signal not just some meaning, but something about yourself. What gang are you part of? And in corporate jargon, I think that's one of the important functions. It says, okay, we are not in everyday conversation here. What we are in is a particular kind of discourse, which is corporate working life. And uh, this is a very normal kind of thing that people do in languages, whether they're hunting, whether they're partying, whether they're working, they reach for specialized vocabulary that somehow signals uh, that that's what they're doing. And I think that Sometimes it rubs people up the wrong way precisely because you are mixing two kinds of interaction. One is this is a 
workplace interaction. But on the other hand, we're just normal human beings who speak the same language. And that's when people find corporate speak annoying. You're on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami, and Professor of Linguistics, Dr. Nick Enfield, talking about corporate jargon and what it really means. I mean, as an academic, you must use a lot of jargon and technical terms. I don't know, diphthongs, glottal stops, diaphonemes. I understand that you've got very specific terms for things that have very specific applications within your field. But the thing I don't understand is why people use this kind of obfuscatory language, corporate jargon, which kind of doesn't seem to mean anything to everybody. And everybody seems to prefer people to just say it like it is. So how do you explain often complex concepts that you research into plain language that others understand? And why can't my manager do that? (laughs) It's a challenge. When you are having a conversation with a highly specialised linguist and you are a highly specialised linguist, then of course, you're just going to reach for those fancy technical terms. As I mentioned earlier, they're they're having two functions, those words. They're communicating a certain meaning. So I might talk about lexical items. I might be having a conversation with another linguist and I'll talk about lexical items. And so the person will know what I mean, but they'll also understand that I am showing, I'm demonstrating that I am a professional linguist because I know that word and I know how to use it. And now if if it turns out that they're not or they're from some other discipline, they might get a bit annoyed because they realize that lexical item just means word. And so instead of saying lexical items, I may as well just say words. Now, the real answer to your question comes down to partly what we call audience design. So you, when you speak, you have to think about who your audience is, who is the recipient of your message and tailor the way you talk to that person. So you've got to take into account both of these pressures, one being, will I actually communicate any information to this person? And the other is, will I give this person the social message that I want to give them. So if they don't understand the word at all, then you're just going to fail in the first task, right? You're not even going to communicate with them. But you might succeed in communicating the idea, but then fail in this kind of attempt to align socially with them by using an appropriate term. So there's a sort of risk in using jargon in that sense, just like there's a risk in using slang, right? So if you use a swear word in the right context, that can be affiliative and it can help you, it can help break the ice and it can help increase the informality. But if you use it in the wrong context to the wrong person, it can have the opposite effect. It can really harm the interaction in some sense. So there's always a challenge, not just in work, but in other kinds of settings in trying to hit the right balance between the information you actually want to convey and the kind of package you're putting it in, which is really what you're asking about when you ask about the choice between more technical and less technical words. Now, among the many books you've written or edited, one was Getting Others to Do Things, A Pragmatic Typology of Recruitments. What was that about and how does the language we use affect how we can influence or persuade people to do what we want them to do? That was a project done by myself and a large team of other researchers where a large team of linguists traveled to very different parts of the world to collect data in the form of video recordings of people going about their business in their homes and their villages in everyday life. And what we did was to look at the materials that we'd recorded 
and just isolate every case we could find where somebody had got someone else to do something for them. And if you just record people in the kitchen, around the home, doing everyday stuff together, this happens all the time. People are always saying something like, can you pass me that knife? I need some water over here. Open that door for me. All sorts of little requests or what we call recruitments, ways of getting people to do things for you. And it turns out that people everywhere you go rely quite heavily on these things. It turns out that people are very cooperative and very compliant. So when you ask people to help you in some way, most of the time they'll do it, which is nice. It shows that there's a a real sort of cooperative sense among people. And in large part, the tool we use to do this is language. So you can get people to do things for you with gestures, for example, if you just reach out for something that's in their direction, they might see that you're reaching and then offer to help you. But a lot of the time what we're doing is using language to do that. And what we find across languages is that there are some simple strategies. So one strategy might be to just not say explicitly, please hand me that knife. But we might say something like just describe the problem we're having. So we might say, I can't reach that knife. And then you put two and two together and you realize, okay, he can't reach it, but that means he wants it and I'm near it. So I'll help him by grabbing it and passing it to him. So those kinds of strategies are quite clever and they're very, they're universal really. I mean, they don't mind what language you speak, as I said, whether it's in South America or New Guinea or Europe or Australia, people will follow a few fairly simple strategies such as describing the problem they're having and then rely on people to to interpret that situation and then act on it in a cooperative, what we would call pro-social way. Well, I mean, I guess the question I want to know, Nick Enfield, is how do you recruit your children to do the washing up or keep their room tidy? What language (laughs) do you use? What's the strategy? Yeah, I wish that they would apply that kind of inference that I just described to you. So it's a really good point that people bring up quite often in the context of talking about studies like the one I looked at. What I didn't mention about those materials is that we actually did not include in that study children. And there's a reason for that, because in the recordings that we had, the children all over the place and children are being asked to do things or ordered to do things or whatever the case may be. But the interactions with children are very different. And so we could see quite quickly that children were not responding in the same way as adults. Children were not being spoken to in the same way as adults. So we had to put those materials aside for another day. So that would be another study specifically looking at how kids respond. But anyone with young kids knows that they do behave quite differently. They And one way of interpreting that is simply to say, well, they're still being socialized. They're still learning what their obligations are. They're still learning how to interact and they're apprentices in some sense. So it stands to reason that they're not going to operate at the same level as the adults around them, much to our dismay. Yes. I mean, it stands to reason, but it doesn't ship me any less. No, exactly. I couldn't agree more. Disrupt Radio. It's The Next Shift. I'm Sunil Badami and we're back talking corporate jargon with Sydney University Professor of Linguistics, Nick Enfield. What's interesting is that so much jargon 
kind of mimics good communication, which is that we paint a picture, and they also equally seem to be phrasal or verbal phrases with an action, running things up the flagpole, thinking outside the box, opening up the kimono. So how does the use of these jargonistic phrases kind of affect or influence others to do the things that ask them to do? Well, I think part of the answer to the question is really goes back to not so much the effects that you're trying to bring about through the actual words you choose, but those types of expressions, I think, relate more to how the person who's speaking is trying to present themselves. So those kinds of expressions are... Uh, well, they're kind of imaginative if you were the one that thought them up, right? If you were the first person who said those very imaginative little pictures, they might be nice if you're the first person who ever thought them up. But Strunk and White, in George Orwell's famous paper on writing, he has this line where he says, don't use idioms that happen to be current. Don't use phrases that people that are that are sort of not everyday language. And it's exactly that kind of thing that I think he means. And here's why I think that's right. If you are able to innovate with language and think up one of those little metaphors of the kind you just listed, then that says something about how clever you are, right? That's a good thing to do if you can pull it off because people see a new image they haven't seen before and they think, oh, that's cool. And then, you know, it might kind of help them see the problem in a new light. But the problem is that a lot of us aren't that imaginative. And when we hear something that is imaginative or a cool way of saying something or a striking new way of saying something, we're highly likely to go and repeat it. And then quickly it becomes not so new and imaginative anymore. And it's quickly, because it sounds like it's one of those lengthy kind of metaphors, then as soon as we've heard it twice, it's gone stale. And it's this sort of gray area between people who are reaching for something imaginative and interesting in terms of how they can put something, but failing to to hit that mark because the thing that they've reached is actually already past its use by date. Okay, as a linguist, what tips do you have to help us communicate more clearly and effectively? Well, I think in general, the concept I keep coming back to is mindfulness in use of language. It's really thinking about when you want to say something or when you hear someone else saying something, the thing you want to do is pause, process what you're thinking or what the other person is saying and ask yourself, could this have been said in some other way equally well? That allows you to not get swept up in the current of whatever specific words a person has chosen, because when you think about it, the same reality can be described in any number of different ways. But when someone describes it on a particular occasion, they choose just one way, and usually there's a reason for that. So mindful use of language, which means just taking that pause before you speak or before you decide what you think about what someone else is saying, I think that's quite important because it allows you just, particularly when that pause is filled with a bit of thought, a bit of introspection about what the alternative ways of speaking would be, that just gives you that, let's say, mental freedom to think charitably about what's being said, to think more creatively about what's being said and hopefully if people were willing to apply that kind of mindfulness to language we'd be better off sorry i was just pausing there as you advised me to do before i said (laughs) you slayed that nick enfield thank you so much for your time and your tips on how to communicate better without using corporate jargon thanks very much for having me 
When's the last time you sent a telegram or an aerogram or, or a fax? Despite incredible advances in communication technology and with so many options and platforms to do it, it still seems as if we've got a lot of work to do on actually communicating. It seems crazy that we expect plain English in contracts but not in our workplaces. I mean, what is corporate jargon but the same kind of opaque, obfuscatory bullshit spin that we deride politicians for using? And at an unprecedented time of fake news and alternate facts, or speaking plainly, disinformation, when more than ever we seek authenticity and real connection, using words and phrases that say nothing isn't just waffle, it's potentially alienating and misleading. So perhaps the answer isn't running anything up the flagpole, but really thinking about what we say instead of lapsing into mindless cliches speaking in our own voices to say what we really mean and making every day a jargon-free day. And once we've done that, let's start working on PowerPoint-free weeks. Well, we're done talking shit and it's time to clock off this shift. Thanks to Gabrielle Dolan for telling it like it is. You can find out more about Gabrielle and how she can help you communicate more effectively at gabrieldolan.com. And thanks to Professor Nick Enfield for explaining the truth about jargon so plainly. Find out more about Nick and his work at nickenfield.org or check out our program page or socials at disrupt.radio for more info. So, what corporate jargon or buzzword do you really hate and what are you guilty of using? Why don't you tell us on our socials on Facebook, Twitter, Insta and, of course, LinkedIn. This is Disrupt Radio. I'm Sunil Badami. See you next time for the next shift. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, host of Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I've been interviewing people who have achieved huge things in life and uncovering how they keep it together and how they survive the struggle to success. You can listen to all of my podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or whichever podcast you prefer. Just search Nick Brax, Soul Trader. When you finish binging all of my shows, be sure to check out the rest of the Disrupt Podcast Library, The Business Lounge, The Next Shift, Global Disruptors, The Advisory Board, and Conscious Capital. Maybe you own a business or an entrepreneur or just simply want to improve yourself. Disrupt Podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio.